0: Well, there is a purpose behind this, and let me explain. There's a couple of things. First of all, I want you to get a broad and a complete understanding of the different parts of Scripture. Interesting illustration that uh, one of the perspectives teachers shared uh, the evening that I went. Uh, He asked, do you read the Bible like a yearbook or like a novel? and that's a very interesting insight, isn't it? What's the first thing that you do when you open up a yearbook? Yes, you go look for yourself. Admit it. We all do. You go to the back, you go to the index, you see how many times and on what pages, and you go look and make sure that the picture turned out the way you wanted it to. And really, the yearbook ends up being all about you and the memories of that place, and it has a purpose. But the Bible is not meant to be read like a yearbook, like it's All about you. Instead, it's an amazing story, a novel of what God is doing. And wonderfully, He incorporates us into that. But it is about Him and it is His. Story. So I want us to understand Mark as a whole because it's a part of a greater whole, and then it helps us see how that fits into the other parts of Scripture and, of course, gives us the opportunity to move on and look at other parts of Scripture. Now, having said that, we've spent a month already, and we've only arrived at Mark chapter 1, verse 20. So, that's okay, because we have to understand the basic framework of the book, or we'll not understand the whole book properly. We need to understand who wrote it, to whom, where, why, and uh, when. All these are essential in determining what the author's original intention was, because then from that we can properly interpret Scripture, and if we don't, we don't interpret it properly. Now we're going to establish an overview of the teaching and the purpose and the broad themes of Mark that he's communicating, and this will help us move through the material, of course. Now, this doesn't mean that any single passage is not important and not deep with meaning and can be studied with that Uh, kind of depth. It's just that we won't be able to do all of them that way. But we will move through and we'll be at uh, the 50,000 foot level or whatever, 35,000 feet I guess is what we travel in our airplanes. And then We will dive down deep into passages from time to time as we understand them in the greater context, and we'll do that even this morning. So you're going to need a couple pieces of paper with you uh, as we look at this. First of all, I want you to take out the outline, whether you use this or not and take notes, that doesn't matter. I need you to look at it and look at the first uh, part of that page. And then I also want you to, while you're in there digging around, to find your outline, get that gray sheet of paper. We're going to need that a little bit later when we consider The guided prayers. So with these in hand, look at the first side. Now that's a lot of information that's on that first side. It's not like you have to memorize all of those verses, though it would never hurt you if you did. I just want you to see the broader themes of what we can look at here through the book of Mark. Actually, this is just taking us through the first part of it, the first half of of the book uh, through chapter 8. And I want you to see that these are the broad themes I want us to look at. The first part of the book, really the first three chapters are Jesus acting they show what he can do and the reason I put all of those verses there is so that you see the movement they went to Capernaum as soon as they left Jesus got up and left when Jesus entered Capernaum once uh, once again Jesus went Jesus was going through the grain fields another time Jesus went Jesus withdrew all of these action verbs that talk about all that he's doing in the first three chapters he wants us to see Mark wants us to see what Jesus does first of all Extremely important. Jesus acts. This is what he can do. Then you see, and we will spend a couple of weeks looking at uh, what that means uh, for us in Jesus acting. We're going to see this morning his power over evil and sin and what that means in his love and his forgiveness. And then we're going to look at his power over the law and all other things, and that just shows us. Purpose and hope, just amazing how you find those things in Scripture that we've been looking at all fall. Once again, this is what Mark does. He lays out immediately. First, you need to see what Jesus does. Then, what Jesus teaches. And so, now you see the citing of these verses beginning in chapter 4 and going through chapter 6. Jesus teaches what he says. Jesus began to teach. He said to them. He also said, again, he said. He began to teach in the synagogues. And then he went all through, the, from village to village, teaching. So we're going to spend four weeks in that area looking at what Jesus' teaching means for us. The God part of his teaching. The man part of his teaching. The God-meets-man part of his teaching. And the man-asked-to-obey part of his teaching. So we'll spend a few weeks there. And then the last section, chapters basically seven and eight, Jesus confronts, and he confronts what is wrong. So he acts in love and forgiveness. He teaches that so he, his acting is about what he does, his teaching is about what he says, and then Jesus confronts what is wrong. And in these passages, we see these. Uh, citing of circumstances. Jesus made his disciples do certain things. Others came to him and confronted him. Why don't your disciples? And he answers that. And then the Syrophoenician woman first let the children eat what they want in that story. And, and she says, oh, but even the crumbs. See, she, he even confronted her and her faith just shone out of that situation. With a deep sigh. It's another time that we see Jesus almost exasperated with the way these people are responding to him, if I send them home, they will collapse. They're so hungry. And he confronts his disciples and said, "What are we going to do about this?" Again, he sighs deeply in another passage. Then he's telling them, "You be careful." And he's talking to them about improper teaching. And then he also says, "Do you still not understand?" So time and time again, in this passage, he confronts. And he confronts what is wrong. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at what that means for us because he confronts our fear and our pride and favoritism and sickness and hunger and teaching and leadership and understanding and conclusions. So we'll spend a few weeks in that understanding what Jesus has to say as he confronts us. So that's the broad picture. Let's go back to the first part. Today, Jesus acts. This is what he can do. And the first thing we want to see is that he has power over evil and sin. Now, what that means is Jesus acts in love and forgiveness first. So, he acts in love. This passage, Mark chapter 1, 21 through 45, uh, is filled with a number of acts of healing. Now, one of you might, you know, overachieving, sharp students, looks at Chapter 1, verse 21, and says, Oh, but he's teaching with authority. This is about his teaching. It's true, it's not that any of these categories are exempt from his teaching, but predominantly in this passage, it's about what he does. And in this passage, we, sev- we see several acts, a number of acts of healing. He drives out a demon in a man in a synagogue, he, he heals Simon's mother in law of her fever. All the sick and the demon possessed are healed, and the whole town comes to him. To be healed, and throughout Galilee, he is preaching and driving out demons. Now, chapters one forty through forty two that I asked Don to read today gets Mark's point across most graphically. A leper comes to him. Now that's remarkable too, because the lepers were not lepers were not supposed to come close; they were supposed to stay away. They were supposed to yell, "Unclean!" and so that no one got what they had. But he comes to him, and he drops to his knees, and he begs. And he knows that Jesus can do it. He's filled with faith. He's confident in Christ. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus' reaction is intense, to say the very, very least. And I'm so excited about what I found this week in this particular verse. Because as you read, or as the passage was read to you, it said Jesus was indignant. Now, if you have another translation Uh, other than what we've been reading, it might say something else. And so I started looking because, I mean, that just jumped out out to me. Why was Jesus indignant? He was angry. He was mad. Why? I looked at other translations, and they said he was filled with compassion. He was moved deeply. He felt very sorry for this person. So what is this about? So I began to look at the the meaning of that word. Now we're diving deep down into this, and we've got this one word. It means to feel deeply or Mm -hmm. viscerally, to yearn, to have compassion, pity, and it is used in an absolute sense. So some translations say he's moved with pity or compassion or sympathy, or he is deeply moved. But there are other translations that say he was angry, he was indignant. He was incensed. Well, what does the word mean? So the word actually finds its origin in our guts, in our in our bowels. Now I know that's not very pleasant. We we like to consider the seat of our emotions our heart. Um, but if we're really honest with ourselves, if you're going down the highway and you come over a rise and you know you're going too fast and you see a police officer on the side of the road, your heart doesn't pitter-patter. You feel it a little deeper than that, don't you? See, that, and that's, that's where this comes from. It, we get that, oh, feeling in our gut. That became, uh, metaphorically, the seat of our emotions, biblically, that, that became the sense of this deep feeling And so it became uh, uh, identified with this deep seed of emotions, and these emotions can go both ways. So, very fascinating, in two different parables, we see the same word with both of these emotions, great compassion and great anger. So one of these is in um, uh, Luke, Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 15. Two, there's two of them. So in Matthew chapter 18, it's the parable about the unforgiving servant. Do you remember the story of the man who had a servant who owed him a tremendous amount of money? And he goes after him and he says, you owe me this money. And he comes to him and he begs for mercy. And the word is used for the first time on the part of the master when he's filled with compassion. And what does he do? He forgives the debt, doesn't he? He says, you're forgiven. But the parable goes on to say that that man, in turn, who had been forgiven, went off to another man who owed him almost nothing and beat him senseless and put him in prison until he could pay the price. Now, um, stop there. Luke chapter 15, the parable of what we know as the parable of the prodigal son, what I like to call the parable of the prodigal God. That parable, the word is used when the son, who has been wayward and is coming back, the father sees him and he's moved with compassion. Remember, he doesn't even get a get a chance to spit everything out. He just brings a new robe and puts a ring on his hand, and puts new finger, and they have a they have a party. And they because he's moved with compassion. Now, now that becomes the verb and the word that changes and that brings the turning point in the story. The turning point in the second in the first story of the unmerciful servant is that he goes off and he beats this other person senseless, puts them in jail, and when the previous master finds out that he did that, the verb shows up again. He's incensed. He's indignant. How dare you be forgiven and now fail to forgive? In Luke chapter 15, it's not the father that becomes incensed. It's the older brother who is so angry at his younger brother and will not allow him to be forgiven. Wow. Do you see this? We might say that Jesus, in this situation, going back to Mark, is both deeply moved with compassion for the man and viscerally angry angry that he is in this condition. And look at how that is supported by his response and how Mark records it. What's the first thing Jesus does when this man begs? to be forgiven. He reaches out and he touches the man. He broke all the rules. You weren't supposed to touch a leper. He wasn't supposed to come near so anybody could touch him. Jesus touches this man. That's why we end up using that word in our mission statement too because we believe it's significant to make sure that person knows not only that God can heal them, but that we care about them. He touches him and he says, I am willing. Be clean, the imperative. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus hates that the situation is this way. He is indignant. And he shows that it is not To be, it's not meant to be this way. He doesn't want us sick and ill. It's real, it's true. But He doesn't want it to be that way. He begins His ministry saying and wanting to show and have people see His power, His love, His compassion. And as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, He never intended that we would suffer this way. Oh, it's true. And the result of the fall has brought it on us and we will continue to it. Until redemption is complete and glory, we will continue to. But he never meant for it to be that way. He didn't want it to be that way. And he wants everyone to know at the very beginning of his ministry, I don't like this. And I've come to change this. And it will take time. And it will take more than a simple physical miracle. It's going to take that miracle on the cross to solve all of this. But I want everyone to know who I am and what I can do. This is his message of love, and God starts here. The first thing he would say is, I love you. And the first thing he does is heal you. Do you trust that? Do you? You see, the first eight chapters, remember, this is Jesus the Messiah. This is the one that was promised. This is the one who keeps his promise. That means we can trust him. Now we've got an application in our trust. Do you trust that? Do you trust that he hates the effects of sin? that he's just that good? Or do we, in some kind of twisted way, think we deserve this? Or that someone else deserves this? Because they did what they shouldn't do. And you know what? It serves them. I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, you get the consequences of your sin. I know that that's true. But do we slide into some kind of self-righteous attitude that would cause us to think that people just get what they deserve? And that's it? So what? Who cares? Jesus starts by acting, and he shows up on the scene, and he wants us to see that this leper was never meant to be a leper. Do we believe that He heals the pain that we suffer? That though His healing will not always be instantaneous, it will be eternal. And in time, He will fix everything. Because He means to. Because He never intended it for for it to be this way. He loves you That much. Now we're ready for lesson number two in the way Jesus acts. He's shown his power over evil, and he acts in love towards that. He hates it, and he wants to help us all out of it. And he shows his power now over sin and he acts in forgiveness. So now the second passage that we looked at, a few days later when Jesus again came to Capernaum, now we're talking about the same people, and they're ready for lesson number two. You've seen that I can heal. Now I want you to see that it's more than just fixing your earthly ills. This time he doesn't heal because of faith. He sees their faith in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, this time... He forgives your son, son, your sins are forgiving. And speaking of being incensed, this is what the teachers of the law immediately do. They're thrown into this mental frenzy blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus can sense this, by the way. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, letting him know that these people are thinking that way. And so he says, which is harder? Now, the answer is found in the priority. This healing is greater because it's spiritual and it's eternal. The greater need that we have is to be spiritually healed. But it's also invisible. So to prove it, he heals his body to show that he has the authority as the Son of Man to forgive sins. So the question for us is, what are you thinking if you're in the setting? If you happen to be a part of that crowd that was longing to hear jesus and and, and, and find out what this was all about and, and somebody comes, and if you don't know, these were kind of square homes with flat roofs that had ch- steps that went up the side, and so these guys went up there and then they they took that flat roof and they opened it up and they lowered him down now Now, what were you thinking if you were in that situation? What would you think would would you would you would you think you know? Look at that. I mean, the guy didn't do anything. How do we know that he has any faith? He's just forgiven like that. Did he pray the sinner's prayer? Did he admit that he was a sinner? Did he recognize that he's placed his faith in Christ and Christ alone? does he? Does he understand really? Does he get it? How can God forgive him? Those are the law abiders. Many of us would consider ourselves law-abiders. We're good, law-abiding citizens. Compared to many, we we try and do everything we possibly can. And sometimes we can make it harder for others to believe. Because we think the law says you're supposed to do it just this way. Or maybe you're one in the group that's going, oh, man, I mean, of course, you know, he's the one that ought to be forgiven. He's the one that ought to be healed. The poor guy. Look at what he's been through. Look at these are the lawbreakers. These are the ones sitting there knowing that they're guilty and not thinking they deserve to be forgiven. I mean, of course, he deserves to be forgiven because look at what he's been through. The poor guy. Absolutely. Heal him, please. But me? Nah. I don't deserve that. I mean, he didn't didn't do anything to become a cripple, but I've just crippled myself with all the things that I've done. God doesn't want to forgive me. He's going to forgive somebody somebody else who, who really deserves it. Both responses are wrong, aren't they? I think it comes down to who wants forgiveness. The way God gives it freely and without deserving it. He knows the heart, and He knows if that heart is repentant and it believes. In fact, the story of Levi that comes next in the passage is exactly the point. He calls Levi to be with him. Levi calls a party with all his tax collectors and sinners, and they scoff at him. The law-abiders go after him and say, you know, why does he eat with all these people? And his answer is, a physician comes to heal those who are sick. I've come to forgive those who want to be forgiven. I've come to heal those who understand that they're sick. This is his message of forgiveness, and God goes there next. The first thing God would say to you is, I love you, and I hate the situation you're in. And the second thing he would say is, I've taken the first step to make things right. I want to forgive you. Do you trust that he forgives? take that gray sheet of paper and I asked you to and take a look at that. Do you trust that he forgives? Do you trust that he forgives you if you don't deserve it? Hmm. I'd encourage you to consider praying a prayer like one of these first two if you don't think you deserve to be forgiven. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus you, you claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. Grant that I might be undaunted by the cost of following you as I consider the reasons for doing so. If what you claim is true, please guide me and teach me and open me to the reality of who you are. Give me an understanding of you that is coherent and convincing and that leads to the life that you promise. Because that's what he wants to do. Or maybe you need to say, Lord, I admit that I'm weaker and more sinful than I ever believed. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared to hope. Those are for the lawbreakers. Maybe you need to take some time and pray a prayer like that. Or maybe you're a law abider. Hmm. Second two might be a helpful way to reflect. Lord Jesus, grant that I may see you in the fulfillment of all my need and may turn from every false satisfaction to feed on you the true and living bread. Enable me to lay aside the sin that so, that clings so closely and run with perseverance the race before me, looking to you, not me, as the author and perfecter of my faith. Or maybe the second one, grant that I may take the necessary steps to be one with your people and live in the fullness of your spirit, not judging others based upon what you think they should believe. I'd like us to take a few minutes and reflect. on how we trust. Do we trust that He forgives others that don't deserve it? Do we trust that He forgives us who do not deserve it? Take some moments and pray silently about that before we close our time here. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your immeasurable love. For your Son and the power and authority that you gave him over over evil and sin. Thank you that you don't want us to suffer. Surely we do as he did for us. But you hate this enough that you will bring healing. And you hate sin enough to bring about forgiveness. So together, Lord, as we are going to sing in a moment, we sing, my faith looks up to thee. Thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine, now hear me while I pray and take my guilt away. Oh, let me from this day be holy thine. In Jesus' name, amen.